Thanks, Karen. Uh, long passage today, two whole verses. We should be home by 10. Um, no, we, no, there's a lot in them. Uh, as Sandy said, my name's Mitch, and I'm a ministry trainee here at St. Mick's. And as we've worked through 1 Timothy, we've seen Paul address many different groups that make up God's household, the church. And today we come to Paul's, ver- oh, Paul's words to another group of people, slaves. Now, there might be a few different responses among you as we come to these verses. We might be tempted to think, well, this doesn't really apply to me. I'll sit this one out. I'm not a slave. And at first glance, these words do seem anchored in the first century. You might even find that these verses strike you as a bit offensive. Why doesn't Paul tell the slaves here to fight for their freedom? They've had their rights taken away. Shouldn't Paul tell them to take it back? In fact, why does he address them at all? Does Paul's addressing of slaves here mean that the Bible actually affirms slavery? And indeed, modern critics have certainly accused Paul here of giving, implying approval to the practice. So what do we do when we come to verses like this? Well, to start with, we must understand them in a bit of a wider context. So, firstly, we're going to hear a little bit about what Paul says on slavery. This isn't the place for a systematic look at slavery throughout the Bible. Um, That would take more time than we have. But Paul's words here in chapter 6, they do come at the end of other things he has said, both in 1 Timothy and his other letters. And I just want to mention uh, four things that Paul says about slavery. Four things. The first one, Paul actually does speak out against slavery. And he does so in this very same letter. At the start of the verses we've read today, verse 1, Paul describes slavery as a yoke. This term, which Sandy addressed in his sermon last week, does denote a weight, suppression and labour. Slavery is a burden. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul actually encourages slaves to get out of their situation if they are able. But that's not all. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, if you can cast your mind back in verse 10, there's a list of things that we are given that are contrary to sound doctrine. And among them we have murderers and slave traders. He condemns it as wicked. And interestingly, Paul goes further still in that list by including those who kill their fathers and mothers. Now, that might strike you as a strange thing to put there, but it is supposedly a reference to the Roman emperor at the time, Nero. Now, the Roman emperor also held the position of overseeing the slave trade, and Nero killed his mother. So here, although cryptically, because this letter was not just for Timothy but the wider public, Paul condemns, although a bit cryptically, the slave trade and those in charge of it. So Paul is not passively nonchalant about slavery at all. He speaks out against it and those who oversee it. Secondly, Paul understands that it is the gospel and prayer that truly transforms. In chapter 2, rather than chanting, down with the emperor, freedom for slaves, Paul actually tells us to pray for the emperor and for those in authority. 
because Paul sees the reality of the world and he knows the human heart, he understands that a riot won't fix the problem. It didn't work out well for Spartacus. He knows it's only a heart changed by the gospel that is truly transformative. There are many important social justice issues today. Slavery still exists. There is a lot for us to rightly advocate for and advocate against. But don't let social issues become your gospel or replace your gospel. Let the message of Christ Jesus died and rose again be in your heart and on your lips first and foremost because Paul puts forward the gospel as the means for world change. Thirdly, Paul is right to address slaves here and to give them advice about how to live as Christians. If the New Testament didn't mention or address slavery, you would wonder if it was actually a first century book at all, because that's not reality. In the Roman Empire, supposedly as many as one in five people were slaves. It's a large chunk of the population, in Rome itself even more. And in God's grace, many slaves converted to Christianity. And so to talk to them about how they should live as Christians is highly appropriate. And Paul does this many times. He addresses slaves as a group of people in Ephesians, Colossians and Titus. And I think it shows the dignity that Paul gives them and the concern that he has for them. So why does Paul need to give this advice in particular to slaves? You might think there are many other things he could have said to slaves. He might have comforted them by telling them to look forward to the heavenly rewards to come, that their temporary sufferings pale in light of their eternal inheritance. And if you think that, you're right, and Paul does. He says those things in other letters. He says them in this letter as he addresses everyone. And he says it in Ephesians 6, which is the same church in which Timothy was was currently. And fourthly, to understand what Paul writes, we do need to look not just at the biblical context, but the immediate historical context and who he's writing to. So it appears a conflict had arisen in the Ephesian church between the newly converted slaves and their masters brought about through false teaching and misunderstanding. In Ephesians, Paul talks a lot of the freedom that is found in Christ, and that is true. But the slaves saw their freedom in Christ as meaning that they were no longer slaves in any context. They were now free from slavery as well, despite Paul spelling out the contrary in Ephesians 6. So they thought their freedom in Christ meant freedom from their earthly obligations and responsibilities, that there was now no earthly submission needed. And that's not a new idea. This same idea of warning Christians not to abuse their newfound freedom in Christ is addressed at least three other times in the New Testament, although for varying reasons. In Romans, 1 Corinthians and 1 Peter, for example. So Paul is writing to challenge this misunderstanding. Becoming a Christian does not mean our earthly situation no longer matters or that we are now free from all responsibility. 
It certainly doesn't mean that we seek to be free of authority and structure and hierarchies. That seems to be what some people today think will fix everything, but it hasn't and it will never work. In fact, in all probability, a large portion of Paul's audience lived as slaves for their entire lives. And nowhere in the Bible does it promise you a perfect, responsibility-free life if you trust in Jesus. What a dangerous idea that is. Just look at the examples we are given of those of faith in Hebrews 11, if you don't believe me, or look at the lives of the disciples or Jesus himself. While thinking about this freedom in Christ, I had a terrible uh, premonition. I was thinking of my son, uh, Miles, coming to me and saying, sorry, Dad, um, but you can't tell me what to do anymore because we're actually equal in God's eyes. Uh, I have freedom in Christ, and so I don't need to listen to you anymore. Uh, That's very scary. I would also be very impressed because he's three and that shows high-level thinking and vocabulary that I didn't know he'd have. So I'd be amazed. But he would still be going to bed on time. It's... But it's worth us actually questioning, why is this? Why doesn't freedom in Christ mean freedom from earthly responsibilities? Uh, even and especially if we've established that slavery is wrong. So why can't we have our freedom in Christ, I mean freedom on earth in that sense as well? And the reason is very clear. It's in verse 1 for you. It's all for the sake of God's name. Verse 1, All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. So this is Paul's big concern, that God's name and our teaching is not slandered and not spoken poorly of. And this is actually the idea that has united all of 1 Timothy. Christians must honour others because that in turn honours God. It all comes back to the church as the household of God, our serious title. This household has the responsibility, we are told earlier in Timothy, of being the pillar and buttress of the gospel out in the world. So what the world sees of God, they see through the lives of his family, the church, which is us. The so that in verse 1 shows that the purpose of Paul's concern was to prevent the misbehaviour of the slaves by covering Christ with disgrace. Paul's great concern was for the glory of God. Now, this makes sense, I think. I grew up in a small country town, a wonderful town, where everyone knew everyone, and people knew you mostly uh, through your parents. And it might sound strange, this is true. As a child, I was asked what my last name was far more than I was ever asked what my first name was. To the point when people asked me what my name was, I'd say, Ah, it's Walker. And occasionally I'd think, oh, sorry, Mitch. It's a thing. And I knew that what I did would be associated with that name and with my parents. And what scares you at school more than getting a detention uh, is having your parents rung. Not that that ever happened to me. Not one. Um, 
and thankfully in the town I grew up there were actually a few different Walker families so I knew that if the situation called for it I could always temporarily associate with another family uh, to spare my parents for a good reason but we can't do that with Christ can we when we bear Christ's name so if slaves who had been converted all of a sudden became disobedient stopped working or broke the law by running away what does that show us about Christ and his gospel well it shows us that it is Christ that has made the slaves lazy or criminals or just worse slaves than they had been before the goal of slavery or your slavery should be to glorify God's name through your conduct first and foremost and while preparing this I just kept coming back to to Joseph and his example Joseph was sold into slavery by his own brothers and when he was sold to Potiphar we read in Genesis 39 that Potiphar saw that the Lord was with Joseph he recognized it and we read that Potiphar and his household were blessed because of this but we also see here that material blessing is not the motive for Joseph's behavior and it's not the inevitable consequence either because if we keep reading soon after Joseph rejects Potiphar's wife's advances and he ends up in jail an even worse situation but as the story progresses I hope we can see a pattern emerges regardless of the injustice of his situation Joseph served the Lord and in every instance that made those around him think well of the Lord eventually it led to Pharaoh heeding the word of the Lord given to him in a dream and that led to provisions for his kingdom during a severe famine all because Joseph had been a faithful servant and a slave so Paul is able to tell slaves that they really can bring God glory in the difficult situation that they are in and I want us to stop and think about it because that's really wonderful news that God can use our hardship and our circumstances for his glory it's so dignifying it's radical and I find it really sustaining and it's certainly still true today we can glorify God every one of us regardless of the situation we're in and often God is especially glorified through our faithful conduct in difficult situations when we suffer well it shows our faith is genuine not just fair weather faith it brings questions of why and how to the surface pointing people to God and it encourages God's people only our good God can use our weakness and our frailty the brokenness of our lives and the hardship of our situations to sanctify us and to comfort us as we see that our witness really matters it's great news because when we see the gospel we see a, a beautiful truth our freedom in Christ is so much better than any earthly freedom it is the freedom from what we need freedom from most the deadly embrace of sin it's the freedom to not fear those who can kill the body 
but can't kill the soul. Our freedom in Christ, it's secure and it's eternal. It's not based on the goodness of our earthly masters or our situation. It has already been bought and paid for with the precious blood of God's own son. We can rightly say along with William Wallace in Braveheart that they may take our lives, but they can never take our freedom. I thought about doing the accent, but my wife tells me I'm really terrible at accents, so for her sake, I won't. Um, And this is the encouraging message for the slaves, isn't it? Your masters can take a lot away from you, heaps and heaps, but they can't take what matters most. Paul is telling them that their freedom in Christ It's way better than they think because their earthly situation, it it doesn't matter as much in compared to being adopted into God's family. Now, it's with this truth as the foundation that Paul can give the radical advice to slaves of slaves, honour your masters. And that's our next point. Slaves, honour masters. So what did that look like? How do they do that? Well, we've actually been showing these things all through 1 Timothy. We were told to honour widows by caring for them, to honour elders by respecting them and not accusing them baselessly, to honour our teachers by listening to them, by honouring the young, by respecting them and our elders by treating them as as mothers and fathers. And we honour our master quite simply by working well through obedience, diligence, integrity, compliance. These were the characteristics of a good slave. Now, we are told in the Bible so many times to proclaim the gospel with words. Now, we should be doing that and looking for opportunities all the time. The gospel is spoken and a written thing. Jesus himself is called the word. We should absolutely do that constantly. However, I wonder if you have ever thought about your attitude to work or your work ethic as evangelism. Because I think the implication here is that it is. And this application, by extension, is for us here today. It is not a direct line from being a first century slave to a 21st century worker, but there is a lot for us. Do our attitudes and our efforts at work affect how those, particularly our our masters, view us? Yes, they do, absolutely. And do your bosses, do those around you know that you are a Christian? Well, I certainly hope so. And so the application for us is we too must be careful not to give a bad impression of the Christian faith through poor work ethic, laziness, not giving our our bosses, our masters, due honour. Because just like the slaves in the first century, we are part of the household of God too. So do you apply yourself and give honour to your boss, even if they are extremely difficult? Take my situation, for example. My current boss is very difficult. It's it's okay, Sandy doesn't go to this... No, he's not. Sandy's wonderful. I'm really sorry. I couldn't help myself. Sorry. Um, But this, this is what we hear in the Bible. Peter writes in 1 Peter, Servants, be submissive to your masters, not only to those who are good, 
but also to those who are unreasonable. Our attitude should not be dependent on external things and whether our boss is good or bad. Now, an important caveat here. Some of us are in an extremely blessed situation. We can potentially change jobs if our current situation is untenable or if opportunity arises, and of course, that's fine, that's good. This passage should not be read to say that you should stay in whatever situation you are in now, even if you don't want to be there. That's not right. We are actually blessed to be in a country where, all things considered, workers are protected and there are avenues to pursue if mistreated, but this is about our attitude and our approach to whatever situation and work we are in. We should see it as evangelistic. And, of course, because this is about attitudes, it applies even more broadly than that. You may not consider yourself a slave, but we are all beholden to something and someone. We all have masters of some sort. And our attitudes to what, whatever authorities are in our life and our attitude to what we apply ourselves to uh, reflects this same thing again. So do you give honour to your school teachers or your university lecturers in your studies? Do you give honour to the state and federal government by obeying laws, by being honest in your dealings? All of these things come into play. Because believing in Christ doesn't mean slacking off uh, or tuning out of things of the world. It actually means taking responsibility more seriously because we know it reflects the household of God. Um, I know of a local shop. It's not owned by a Christian, but uh, the owner loves to hire Christians. They've seen that young Christians they hire have integrity and can be trusted and they work hard. Now that's not to say that those who aren't Christian don't do that, don't read that into that, of course they can. Uh, But what a wonderful thing for a connection to be made between faithfulness in work and faithfulness to God. For an owner to see that, I think, is an example of Christians bringing honour to God. It's a wonderful example. And then we get to verse 2 where we are told that this applies especially for Christian masters. So it seems that it wasn't just the slaves of non-Christian masters who were abusing their freedom, uh, but actually those with Christian masters. I'll read verse 2. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. So slaves are not to take advantage of their Christian masters, thinking, ah, we're brothers, they can't tell me what to do, or he has to show me grace, or he'll forgive me so I don't need to do. It's, It's actually quite the opposite. Knowing that your master is also your brother should mean you go above and beyond for their sake, should mean you really care for them as a brother and want them to do well and succeed. Again, for the sake of of God's name. It's all linked. You are co-workers in Christ. Work as if working for the Lord. And in verse 2, 
There's actually a, a word for masters or those in authority as well. It doesn't let them off the hook. It says, uh, it assumes that the masters are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. Now, it doesn't say if they are. It assumes that if you are a Christian master or a Christian boss, you are devoted to the welfare of your slaves. The gospel is transformative to everyone and you are equal in God's eyes. You are those under you are your brothers and sisters. So, of course, it's reversed. And if you are a Christian in a position of authority, you are called to, to look after those under you, to be devoted to their welfare and in this way work together for the Lord. Well, to finish, I wanted to finish by pointing out that the language of slavery is actually used a lot symbolically in the New Testament. And often slavery imagery is used to explain the gospel because we are told that no matter what, we are a slave to something. We are either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. It's not slave to sin, nothing. It's slave to sin or slave to righteousness. But we also read that the wages of sin is death, while Jesus says in Matthew 11:28 that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And it's easy and light because Jesus has already done the great saving work that we need to bring us into the household of God and in relationship with him. In 1 Timothy 2, uh, Paul writes that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for us to buy us out of slavery. So what does it mean then for us to be slaves of righteousness? Well, I think we can do no better than look at the example of Jesus again. Mark 10.45 records that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He was righteous, he was in very nature God, but he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. And he willingly submitted himself to a far greater injustice than slavery. It was the greatest injustice that ever happened, death despite never sinning in action or thought all for you and all for the glory of God. So, believers, use your freedom to serve. Use your freedom to serve well so that our Lord's most holy name won't be slandered, so that the truly transformative truth of the gospel can go out meaningfully into the world and so that the household of God may grow as we await our eternal rest in heaven.